0: This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Start building your website today at squarespace.com. Enter offer code Nate at checkout, Nate, and get 10% off. Squarespace, build it beautiful. Loot Crate, yes, it is a monthly subscription box service for geeks and gamers out there. It guarantees you $40 plus in value In every crate, and sometimes it's a lot more, you never know what's going to show up. Uh, Star Wars stuff, Marvel stuff, Walking Dead, Legend of Zelda, all that stuff, it just comes to your house. Lootcrate.com. Enter code NATE and save three bucks on a new subscription. Lootcrate. Bring it to your home, you geeks. Hey, it's reading aloud. We've had a little break. It's nice to be back. Thanks for thanks for showing up to the party. My name is Nate Cordry. I'm the host of the show. And this is another jam-packed episode that oh man, I'm really excited to share with you because like many other episodes, it has diversity. It is uh we're all over the map again, and I'm really excited to share. This interview slash reading that's uh, towards the uh, the middle end of the show. It's uh, oh man, we get into some stuff and it's really great. But before we get to that, I want to talk about uh, the book club because people have some fear, and I want to talk you down and say yes, the Stephen King book eleven twenty two sixty three is long. Yes, it's eight hundred pages. However. It's not long long, it's Stephen King long, which means you fly through this reading. It's so easy to read. There's no uh, third agenda that your brain has to figure out, like maybe this book is really about the, the you know, Iraqi occupation and there's something, to, no, it's just a fucking awesome book about a guy who goes back in time and tries to stop John Kennedy from getting murdered. It's a great story and it's really fun. Maybe, I don't know, maybe the last, I'm not finished through the book so maybe towards the end it gets really heavy but I doubt it. Stephen King is awesome. It's only fun to read him. So, pick it up, use both hands and read eleven twenty two sixty three. 63 It came out, I think, two, three years ago um, and won a bunch of awards and now it's being made into a movie, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, it's, it's a great, really fun read. So, I think People are afraid because they walk past it at their local bookstore and go, "Whoa, that's four inches wide." Um, don't don't let the fear uh, keep you away from an awesome read. So pick it up; it's really great. Um, I'm really enjoying it, but it's also gonna be a really fun book to talk about in the book club, which is coming up in three weeks. With uh, God, who's coming back? Oh yes, John Forrest, Emily Maya Mills, Nelson Franklin. We have a great lineup of people for the book club. Um also the following month I haven't uh, announced the book yet, but there's going to be a live book club. We're going to record the book club podcast live at Skylight Books uh in Hollywood on Vermont. It's going to be so much fun, but I'm keeping the book from you. I'm going to announce it in 2 weeks. So um stay tuned. Also, live show coming up. Another live show with an amazing lineup of readers. God, I keep getting really. One of the great things about doing this podcast is I'm reminded that I have really smart, talented friends, and they do favors for me. They are willing to prepare and show up and perform. And this coming show, this lineup is amazing. Uh, you know who's coming? Baron Vaughn. Yes, a wolf pop star. He has his own show with Leonard Maltin. Uh, He's going to be reading. Um, Mike Still is coming back. James Urbaniak is coming back with new readers. It's going to be a really, really fun show. So that is Sunday, June 14th at 7.30 p.m. at the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater on Franklin. Five dollars. Come on down and check it out, Sam. You know? Oh, I'm going. Are you busy? No, I'm going. You're going to go? Yeah, I'm going. Because I don't think you've ever Nate, I said I'm going. So you say that, and then you, like, you wink. Fuck you, I have man. to say when I wink. Let's I, move on. I forget on. it's a podcast. Ugh. Um, <laughs> let's, let's get to the first uh, comedy piece today, uh, which I'm really excited to share with you. The great James Urbaniak came down to the theater, I believe this was in April, March or April, and recorded this fantastic piece that Tom O'Donnell wrote. You can follow Tom on Twitter at TomIsOK. Uh, Tom is a writer and he wrote this amazing piece for McSweeney's. He also has uh, written stuff for The New Yorker and he has books, he's written books. Uh, So thank you, Tom, for letting us read your piece and James absolutely kills it. Here is James Urbaniac at the UCB Theater reading Tom O'Donnell's, I'll let James introduce it. Ladies and gentlemen, the great James Urbaniac.
1: This piece is by Tom O'Donnell. It's called, You Were Fired From This Father-Son Acrobatics Duo. (laughs) Wake up, Dad. I have something to discuss with you. This may sound harsh, but you've left me no choice. I am firing you from our Father-Son Acrobatics (laughs) Duo. Please know that this is not personal, and I'm not angry with you just disappointed. We could have been one of the greatest acts of all time. A middle-aged son, spinning and tossing his aging father around like a bag of laundry. Would have been an entertainment spectacle like no other. I believed in this project. I believed in it so much that despite having no acrobatics training whatsoever, I quit looking for a job I devoted myself full-time to developing our act. When I repeatedly asked you to participate and you eventually stopped saying no as much, I assumed that you were just as committed as I was. But apparently I was mistaken. Now, when you say things like, put me down, (laughs) I just want to enjoy my retirement, (laughs) or I'm 72, you're hurting my legs. I have to question your dedication to father-son acrobatics. For 45 years, you toiled as a CPA, eventually founding your own successful accounting firm. I don't understand why you can't bring that same work ethic to a late-in-life second career as a performance gymnast. You claim that you don't have time to practice five hours a day. Yet, I notice you have time to keep finishing those nonfiction books about trains. (laughs) You say you're too scared to do a simple forward roll. Well, excuse me if I have trouble believing this from the guy who served in Vietnam. You say you think your arm might be broken when you flew into the bookcase, which despite what you say was both of our faults, Well, I hate to tell you, Dad, but something else might be broken, my trust in you. Right at the beginning, we, I, decided that you needed to lose 30 pounds. To date, you have only lost 15. You are still too heavy for me to twirl around like a pizza for the acrobatic move I invented called Pizza Dad. In fact, every time we attempt this, you end up flying right into the bookcase. Sadly, Pizza Dad, like so many other acrobatic feats I envisioned for our unique act, the Sire Flyer, daddy's Strong Legs, Frisbee Dad, etc., remains unrealized. In fact, the only trick we can reliably perform is the one where I unexpectedly shove you and you trip over a low-to-the-ground object. (laughs) Like a chair or a suitcase. Popple-topple. No audience will want to see popple-topple more than eight or ten times. Which means that after months of training, we don't have an act at all. All we have to show for our efforts are matching unitards and a few minutes of stage banter that are way less funny than they could be since you refuse to use curse
2: words.
1: (laughs) This is why I'm forced to let you go. Though you have been fired, please don't worry. I will not let all my time and your money that I've invested in this project (laughs) go to waste. I still believe in the idea of intergenerational acrobatics, (laughs) and I plan on moving forward with this project. And it's why today, I will begin auditioning older Caucasian men that I can easily heft to fill the father role in the act. Fortunately, I will need you to return your monogrammed unitard and ID card. And I will also need you to hide during the auditions because in the Craigslist ad, I said that my real dad was dead. (laughs) Note, I still love you. And this does not affect your status on our father-son snowboarding team. (laughs) Which you are still on, and can't quit.
0: Box services are all the rage these days. You know what else is all the rage? Delicious. Tasty, nutritious snacks. Let's combine those two things and form it like Voltron into one amazing website. Graze.com. G-R-A-Z-E.com. is a snack service that delivers snacks right to your home. And you get to choose what you want. Pure fruit and nut mixes and aromatic broths, cookie dippers. They got everything. Do you have an interest in whole grain banana shortbread dippers with caramel sauce? Yeah, I thought you did. Well, they have it. They put it in a box, and then it gets sent to your home. How awesome is that? And there's no GMOs, no artificial flavors or trans fats. You can always feel good about the delicious snacks that you take out of this box. So go to Graze.com, G-R-A-Z-E.com, and get a free trial box that includes four of their top-rated and most delicious snacks. These are very popular snacks. They're going to get sent to your house. So go to Graze. Graze.com. Use the special code Nate and a free box is coming to you. Thank you, Graze.com. Say thank you, listeners. Nice. Building a website can be tough, and even if you do know your way around coding, I don't. Creating something that looks good and works well is a very time-consuming affair. Whether it's for a business site, a portfolio, a restaurant, whatever else you're creating, in this day and age, you probably need one. So lucky for us, Squarespace is here to make it easy to build beautiful websites without breaking a sweat. Very simple, very powerful Beautiful websites that look professionally designed without you needing to write code. You can have the lowest possible skill level and your website will look fantastic because it has this state-of-the-art technology. It ensures security and stability and you know you can trust Squarespace. I actually created a website uh, two or three years ago on Squarespace and it took me like 20 minutes and it looked great. You can always trust them for 24-hour customer support If you ever have some sort of issue, it's all online and it's only 8 bucks a month. So what are you waiting for? Start a trial with no credit card required and start building your website today. Also, listen up, reading aloud listeners, 10% off your first purchase if you use the offer code Nate. So go to squarespace.com, type in Nate in the little offer code hole and guess what? You're getting 10% off. We want to thank Squarespace for their support of Reading Aloud. Squarespace, build it beautiful. So, Act Two was spawned out of uh, f- creative frustration. I heard that they were doing a production of this play in New York, and it's a play that I love. And I sort of tracked down who was in it, if they had cast all the parts. Um, this is a little window into the life of an actor, and realized that the part that I could play was already uh, cast. So I got frustrated and thought, ah, shit, it's gone. I can't do this. So there are two things to do. You move on and th- try to find the next job, or <laughs> you torture yourself by rereading the play and falling in love with it all over again and just getting more frustrated. So what, which one did I do? I did the latter. I decided to frustrate myself even more. Not only did I reread the play and fall in love with it again, but I watched a documentary about the author, and then I watched a really compelling film version of this play. It's just only getting me more and more frustrated. However, that led to this piece of podcasting gold that I'm dropping into your laps. Ladies and gentlemen, the great Stephen Webber. I doodle. They're all aspects of self.
3: <laughs> the fuck is so funny about that? Maybe if you had an aspect of self, you'd understand. Instead of being a fucking loosely strung together conglomeration of everybody else in your life.
0: Well, we're off to a rip-roaring start. <laughs> we're going to talk about Eugene O'Neill briefly. Mm.
3: Or as he was known to his friends, Mr. Funny Pants.
0: He had... Uh a whole lot of pain in his life. Shit, did he ever. Um, I think it started... Oh, boy. Well, he lost... He lost his mother. His his mother to... Um, she was a morphine addict, but she died of brain a, cancer. A, years later. Yes. Years
3: later, I mean... Yeah. As a... As a right. right um, he had already... Wait a second. He'd been born into a family which had already been... Uh, kind of molded by tragedy, almost like Greek tragedy. Yeah. Um, His father was a a successful actor. His mother was very religious. Um, He he had uh, two brothers, one of whom died very young. Edmund. Edmund. And and he, Eugene, was born afterwards, I believe. Yeah. And then – but his older brother, Jamie, um, James Tyrone (laughs) – Tyrone – uh, James O'Neill Jr. Uh, was this, you know, dissipated, um, wasted guy, and all because of this um, horrible guilt, and bitterness, and remorse that was in the family, having to do, I think, with the death of this child. Uh, but before then, all the pieces were in place. You know, the father was a kind of a um, a raging narcissist and uh, singularly focused on his own career. Right. right. Uh, The mother has, was a deeply religious, but had fallen into, yeah, morphine
0: addiction. And so this is the world into which uh, Eugene O'Neill was born. Doing some research about him as a child and this family, this, the story of this baby dying, uh, Edmund, when he was two of measles, Mm. Jamie had had measles, the oldest brother. And, and he survived measles, but the mother never let go of this idea that Jamie was responsible. Yes. In that some he, way that as a child, he, yes. he gave the kid measles on purpose. Right? right. Because he thought the baby was getting too much, whatever reason as a little. Yeah. So she was never able to forgive her eldest son for the death of her middle child. Yeah. Imagine walking around with that around your fucking neck. No, thank you. He, <laughs> I think I won't. He, um, he died. All three of them died within three years. Uh, Jamie, the oldest son, uh, drank himself to death. Mm-hmm. Um, the father died of intestinal cancer. He was right. also hit by a car, which mm-hmm. led him to the hospital where they found cancer. He died there. Mm-hmm. So the youngest, Eugene, after having a nightmarish um, upbringing, uh, found this success really late in life. Like he wasn't, at 18, he wasn't this enormous star like on the block. He, he didn't, he wasn't a writer. He was a poet. Mm-hmm. He was in the Navy. Right. Um, he was on ships for years. And then he came back to New York and ended up almost drinking himself to death right. like his brother. Yeah. And those people. Like drinking fucking rot gut, you know. Yeah. Um, but I don't know what what triggered him to finally say, "I'm going to write. I'm gonna I'm gonna put all this out there and see what happens." But, I don't know. I mean,
3: obviously, you and I have not done you know, rigorous research, firsthand research into his papers and all that stuff. No. But, but I, you know, just from reading the play, and I've never I've never uh, been in a production of Long Day's Journey. Um, I worked on it in when I was in theater school in college, and have read it a lot and uh, a lot, and have uh, seen the uh, seen productions of it. And there's a couple of really interesting uh, filmed presentations of it. Um, it. It is it's such an epic play, and and um, and for the lay person, um, their first. Uh, response to this play would be like, who wants to sit through three plus hours sure. of intense pain? No yeah. thanks. Yeah, and this is all about pain and sadness and resentment and all that stuff.
0: Guilt, tragedy, guilt,
3: tragedy, all that stuff. I, you know, and and and, the, and oblivion. And and the thing is that this play to me is um, is like a volcano, in that it's ne- it's necessary for the rest of the planet to. Survive you know volcanoes yeah. are kind yeah. of pressure vents, yeah, and what O'Neill found himself, I think quite by accident, but it's a maybe it's a a uh, an identity that he embraced ultimately was he was the the volcano or the prism or whatever you want to call it, uh, through which this kind of primal elemental pain of being alive must pass through, right, and uh um and the thing is that it's it's something that everybody and everybody in this planet can relate to on some level. Now, not everybody has a family as tortured and and complex as the uh, as the Tyrones or as the O'Neills, I might venture. But um, they are touched with it. They have a, they have these little bits of uh, of, of that kind of. I'll say elemental pain within them. And so if you if you dare to face it, if you dare to sit in the theater, right. if you dare to read to read it, you will be affected. And in a way, it's necessary. It's necessary. and and um, you know, he speaks the truth about himself. He speaks the truth about his family. And ultimately, I think he speaks the truth about the human condition that is about pain. You know, birth is painful. Life can be painful. And in fact, a lot of life is about detaching from those models in your life your mother, your father, you know, and, and finding, striking out on your own and finding your own reality and your own truth and your own family through which the cycle of <laughs> detaching is then repeated in your own children and, and all that stuff. Oh, and I feel like he, he epitomizes that, that phenomenon in this play you know so many of the characters are looking for oblivion obviously the mother is is seeking it the sons are seeking it through drink the father through oh. you know also through drink but uh, his his identity as uh, an actor who who blew his career right. on you know the, the search for a kind of a financial security which he would never find because psychologically he was he was brought up in a um, in an environment that you know, precluded any kind of joy. <laughs> I'll put it that way. Yeah. He grew up in the horrible, in his own words, I like guess, bog-trotting Irish yeah. – uh, bog-trotter Irish uh, world, which was so full of suffering. Again, so like I say, this – this on the face of it is long day's journey tonight. tonight, oh, three hours of horror and suffering and drunkenness. I'd rather go – I'd rather watch, you know, the My Transformers movie, yeah, you know, and see, but but even that is, in a sense, a kind of desperate attempt to find oblivion, you know. Yeah, yeah. So you can see somebody; right. it happened to somebody else. Exactly. I want to see cities destroyed. Yeah.
0: You talking, describing him as a volcano is the perfect, the absolute perfect metaphor. I think you were spot on, and it leads me to this quote that I want to, I want to play this quote that Lloyd Richards had in the this. The, American Experience, you know, PBS documentary about Eugene O'Neill. It is is—it's sort of spot on and piggybacks as to what you were saying about him having the courage to fucking put this shit down on paper Mm -hmm. and show people the truth. Here it is.
2: Well, there's something that people need to ponder about Eugene O'Neill, which actually opens them up to the whole art of writing. What does it cost to be an artist? What did it cost to be Eugene O'Neill? What being Eugene O'Neill cost Eugene O'Neill was a mother, cost him a father, cost him a happy marriage, it cost him children. It cost the many wives that he tried to have because he didn't know how. He had never learned that. Mm. Now you say that happens to a lot of people. It does. But not everybody can write about it. Not everybody is really willing to look deep within themselves to see what's going on. What am I doing? And he was capable of that. And that's hard. That is hard to take a pencil and say, this is me in the deepest part of my gut. And this was my mother. And this was my father. And this was all the people who were close to me. And they were all, in some respect, strivers and failures. Uh, That's not an easy thing to say. And what it costs them, I am not sure that our artists are truly appreciated and recompensed for their effort.
0: That's Lloyd Richards in this amazing, amazingly painful and dark PBS documentary that you passed on to me, Stephen. It's also amazing about Gino you know, Nili's—he won. He's only got to win four fucking Pulitzer prizes, yeah, yeah, four, yeah. and a Nobel Prize. Yeah, yeah. It's well, well this, uh, it, to me, it's
3: uh, and and what uh, what Lloyd Richards was talking about about the artist, um, you know, eventually, O'Neill, after uh, uh, writing plays and and searching for means to express certain ideas, eventually he turned inward, um, and hmm. it's almost like seeing the universe in an atom. You know, like all the elements, all the dynamics can be reduced to the basic, so he found the most truthful um expression uh, in his own family, in his own life, ultimately yeah. turning inward, but um unflinchingly so. Yeah. And uh with great courage. And I would I would say that um and even listening to Lloyd Richards speak so beautifully and so eloquently and mellifluously, it's so look, as an actor, I find that type of thing entrancing. I love listening to to somebody who's so sure of themselves, kind of rhapsodize and poetically. But yeah. the thing is that everybody has the capacity to be an artist, maybe not a creative artist, but maybe there's something to the idea of being a kind of an absorbent artist, you know, the, the art of being able to receive what's being created. Whoa. That's something. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so therefore this play yeah. is – that's why it resonates, it resonates and has resonated and was the, re, the recipient of a, of a posthumous Pulitzer Prize, right? Yeah,
0: yeah. He wrote it. He said his wife, Carlotta, his third wife, who um, who was with him until he died – uh, he wrote this um, in 1942, I believe, but it wasn't published until 56. When he right. when he wrote it, he said, lock this up. This is the most, this play almost killed me. Mm. He would emerge from his writing room at night, weeping, yeah. exhausted his hands, shaking mm-hmm. because he had, it, Parkinson's. it wasn't Parkinson's with yeah, brain, he wasn't able to write for his last 10 years because he couldn't control his fucking hands. Mm-hmm. He was dictating it, but that didn't work. Um, but he would, this play like almost killed him. And he said, lock it up. Just lock it up, put it in a vault and don't publish it for 25 years until after I'm dead. Because mm-hmm. I don't want, I, I, this just has to fucking be in the darkness mm-hmm. for a mm-hmm. while. She, after he died, didn't do that. It was published <laughs> two years after he died. Right. But she put in writing that every um, bit of the royalties from this goes straight to the Yale School of Drama. Mm, and developed this Eugene O'Neill scholarship for actors mm-hmm. and um, and creative artists within theater so i think that i think he'd be okay with that well he what wrote, did they say oh go ahead but uh this was it's amazing this is uh the inscription that he wrote that came with the play when she opened it up this was for uh for carlotta on our 12th wedding anniversary yeah. dearest I give you the original script of this play of old sorrow written in tears and blood. A sadly inappropriate gift, it would seem, for a day celebrating happiness, but you will understand. I mean it as a tribute to your love and tenderness, which gave me the faith and love that enabled me to face my dead at last and write this play, write it with deep pity and understanding and forgiveness for all the four haunted Tyrones, mm. these 12 years, beloved one, have been a journey into light, into love. You know my gratitude and my love. Gene. Mm. July 22nd, 1941.
3: Yeah. Incredibly so, moving. Yeah.
0: Unbelievably. So um, there's a, after rereading it um, and watching the film version last week, I so much of it was so inspiring to me and... I asked you to come in here and read a very specific passage of this book, um, of this play, which um, is very famous. You talked about a little bit about um, uh, O'Neill's actual father being Mm -hmm. this very successful actor and selling out to this production of Count of Monte Cristo. Mm -hmm. And uh, he became this enormous star and he performed this play over and over and over, all over the country and made all this money. and what came out of that in this play is this just devastating speech that the elder Tyrone gives about his life as an artist. And I have to say, you I mean, you you know, we talked about this. You're twenty years too young to play this part. Right. Um, but that's <laughs> irrelevant. Um okay. What's, <laughs> okay. what's important is um you understand the written word, and you're able to translate it for people who want to listen to. Well,
3: once again, there's in in reading it. Uh, yeah, I'm not Frederick March or Ralph Richardson or Jack Lemmon or, right. or you know, Christopher Plummer or any of these guys. <laughs> but but there's enough inside here, inside this the speech. Does it? Where's it? Where do you want it to start? Like here, there. Is that good? Mm, uh, yeah. You know, okay. Maybe a can, little bit after, yeah, but okay. wherever you want to start. And uh, there's enough for me to latch onto and go for the yeah. the ride, you know, yeah, the exactly. O'Neill ride, exactly. which is, uh, they should have that at Universal, you know, the Long Day's <laughs> Journey to Night ride. All right, they give you a bottle at the top, right? Put on a, a boater, a straw hat, <laughs> play some cards, some euchre or something, and, and you just go... <laughs> And you go to hell for two minutes. At
0: the first pass, you see your mother. Your mother. your mother. Tied off with a needle in her arm. Ah! Here's one. Her white hair blowing in the wind. It's a skeleton face. Look to
3: your left. There's an overweight prostitute (laughs) named Mamie. And
0: then look to your right. And uh, there's your brother with consumption. Yep. And that's it. And then you look. It's the hologram, but you look next to you in the chair. And there's... Little baby Edmund. Little baby Edmund, covered in measles, <laughs> and then
3: it finally you, it, your car on the track is just belched out onto Ventura. I was going to say <laughs> Ventura Boulevard, like, ugh. Okay, that's it. Because it's in Universal, you know. Yeah, sure. Not sure. Not, not Florida. We'll no, like, oh, no. Belched out into Florida. No, 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 no. <laughs> All right. Well, anyway, that's that. Okay, and that last exchange was basically me avoiding reading this <laughs> text because it's so it's so deep. Well, anyway, let's see. Um, but this is this happens. Uh, yeah, set the scene a little the bit. The setting in act, is that we're in this Act is, four. It's dark. It's evening, and there's been drinking and uh, and confessions of thank you of of resentment, and they know that uh, their mother. Mary, has been um, sedating herself, really, um, looking for that oblivion through uh, morphine.
0: And Edmund is – its we and know that And what's happening
3: that is Edmund has been sick. He, he has consumption. and But the father, who's always been accused of being or characterized as being a miser, yeah. they need to hospitalize him. They need to hospitalize Edmund, but – the father is trying to find the best value <laughs> you know the, the least expensive place that has the best care and of course this outrages the older brother Jamie yeah who is at once Edmund's tormentor and his protector and Ugh. that's his that's his tragedy <sighs> yeah it's, it's an unbelievable scene those two have all right well so it's, they're they're of course gulping whiskey and it takes so many whiskeys to kick in at this point with these people um. And he's talking to his son Edmund. His Jamie is out. And as you're doing danger. this,
0: Stephen, you can stop and start. We'll go back and just okay, cut great. stuff out. So, take, right. so don't don't worry about All getting right. it perfect.
3: Uh. <laughs> A stinking old miser. Well. Maybe you're right. Maybe I can't help being. Although all my life, since I had anything, I've thrown money over the bar to buy drinks for everyone in the house or loaned money to sponges I knew would never pay it back. <laughs> but of course that was in bar rooms. And I was full of whiskey. I can't feel that way about it when I'm sober in my home. It was at home I first learned the value of a dollar the fear of the poorhouse, I've never been able to believe in my luck since. I've always feared it would change. And everything I had would be taken away. But still, the more property you own, the safer you think you are. That may not be logical, but it's the way I have to feel. Banks fail and your money's gone, but you think you can keep land beneath your feet. And you said you realized what I've been up against as a boy? The hell you do. How could you? You've had everything, nurses, schools, college. Though you didn't stay there. You've had food, clothing. Oh, uh, I know you had a fling of hard work with your back and hands, a bit of being homeless and penniless in a farmland. I respect you for it, but it was a game of romance and adventure to you. It it was play. What what do you know the value of a dollar? When I was ten... My father deserted my mother and went back to Ireland to die, which he did soon enough and deserved to. I hope he's roasting in hell. He mistook rat poison for flour or sugar or something. It was gossip. It wasn't by mistake, but that's a lie. No one in my family ever... My mother was left... A stranger in a strange land, with four small children, me and a sister a little older, and two younger than me. My two older brothers had moved to other parts. They couldn't help. They were hard put to. They were hard put to it to keep themselves alive. There was no damned romance in our poverty. Twice we were evicted from the miserable hovel we called home. With my mother's few sticks of furniture thrown out in the street and my mother and sisters crying, I cried too. Though I tried hard not to because I was the man of the family at ten years old. There was no more school for me. I worked twelve hours a day in a machine shop learning to make files, a dirty barn of a place where rain dripped through the roof, where you roasted in summer. There was no stove in winter, and your hands got numb with cold. Where well, the only light came through two small, filthy windows, so in gray days I'd have to sit bent over with my eyes, almost touching the files in order to see. You talk of work. And what do you think I got for it? Fifty cents a week. That's the truth. Fifty cents a week. And my poor mother washed and scrubbed with the yanks by the day, and my older sister sewed, and my two younger stayed at home to keep the house. We never had clothes enough to wear, nor enough food to eat. Well, I remember one Thanksgiving, oh, or maybe it was Christmas, when some yank in whose house mother had been scrubbing gave her a dollar extra for a present, and on the way home, She spent it all on food. I can remember her hugging and kissing us and saying with tears of joy, running down her tired face, Glory be to God, for once in our lives we'll have enough for each of us. Fine. Brave. Sweet woman. There was never a braver or finer.
0: Yeah, she must have been.
3: Her one fear... Was she'd get old and sick and have to die in the poorhouse. It was in those days I learned to be a miser. A dollar was worth so much then, and once you've learned a lesson, it's hard to unlearn it. You have to look for bargains. If I took this State Farm Sanatorium for a good bargain, you'll have to forgive me. The doctors did tell me it's a good place. You must believe that, Edmund. And I swear I never. Meant you to go there if you didn't want to. You can choose any place you like. Never mind what it costs. Any place I can afford. Any place you like. Within reason. Yes. Maybe life overdid the lesson for me. Made a dollar worth too much. And the time came when the mistake ruined my career as a fine actor. I've never admitted this to anyone before, lad, but... ah, Tonight I'm so heartsick I feel at the end of everything. What's the use of fake pride and pretense? That goddamned play I bought for a song... And made such a great success in, a great money success. It ruined me with its promise of an easy fortune. I didn't want to do anything else. And by the time I woke up to the fact I'd become a slave to the damn thing. And did try other plays. It was too late. They had identified me with that one part and didn't want me in anything else. They were right, too. I'd lost the great talent I once had through years of easy repetition, never learning a new part, never really working hard. Thirty-five to $40,000 net profit a season, like snapping your fingers. It was too great a temptation. Yet before I bought the damn thing, I was considered one of the three or four young actors with the greatest artistic promise in America. I'd worked like hell. I'd left a good job as a machinist to take super's parts because I loved the theater. I was wild with ambition. i read all the plays ever written. I studied Shakespeare as you'd study the Bible. I educated myself. I got rid of an Irish brogue you'd cut with a knife. Oh, I loved Shakespeare. Oh, I would have acted at any of his plays for nothing, for the joy of being alive in his great poetry. And I acted well in him. I felt inspired by him. I could have been a great Shakespearean actor if I'd kept on. I know that. In 1874, when Edwin Booth came to the theater in Chicago, where I was leading man, I played Cassius to his Brutus one night, Brutus to his Cassius the next, Othello to his Iago, and so on. The first night I played Othello, He said to our manager, that young man is playing Othello better than I ever did. That, from Booth, the greatest actor of his day or any other. And it was true. And I was only 27 years old. As I look back on it now, that night, was the high spot in my career. I had life where I wanted it, and for a time after that, I kept on upward with ambition. High marriage, your mother asked her what I was like in those days. Her love was an added incentive to ambition. But a few years later, my good bad luck made me find the big money maker. It wasn't that in my eyes at first. It was a great romantic part. I knew I could play better than anyone. And it was a great box office success from the start. And then uh, life had me where it wanted me. Had from 35 to 40,000 net profit a season, a fortune in those days. Or even in these. What the hell was it I wanted to buy? I wonder. That was worth. No matter. It's a late day for regrets. Thank you. Uh, Here's the thing. I mean, (laughs) you know, this is not. It's it's such a um, it's 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 a play that that requires real uh, commitment of time and energy and focus and uh, and maybe that's why it's not produced as often. Or although it is, you know, it's very familiar to a lot of people. But the requirements not only for the the actors, uh, almost have to meet the requirements of the writer, and then the audience has to then meet the requirements of the actors, and holy and 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 when the requirements are met, oh. then it becomes supernatural. You know, I went to see uh, a few years back I went to see a production of uh, Iceman Cometh at the Goodman Theater in Chicago, and with uh, Nathan Lane and Brian Dennehy and. Uh and you know it's a five and a half hour play, man. Again, a very autobiographical uh play. And it's arduous. And it worked. It worked. The audience was there. We were in this seedy bar with all these people. And Robert Falls. Robert Falls directed the hell out of it, you know, and and uh and it is a commitment. And you walk out of there, wrung dry. Um as though you've been through a battle, but you've survived it. I mean, this is something that I think Tony Kushner says in the in the documentary, um, the O'Neill documentary. He says you've you've been through the worst place human beings can go, but you're still alive. You've survived it, and maybe that's the point of of, of this play because we can't all go through this <laughs> there'll be nothing left. Yep. So at least we have to get this kind of yeah. um, maybe uh, extended um, experience through people who've sacrificed themselves yes. in in a weird way and maybe I'm stretching things. No you're O'Neill not. or this play is the kind of a Christ-like equivalent, you know, in in whom all uh, my grammar sucks. All the sins of humanity are poured into these into this these four characters on stage, and they're bearing the brunt of it. They're getting crucified. They're getting the scourges. They are, they are channeling yeah, this primal processing. Pain. So we it. don't have to, right? Right? Do we learn the lesson from it? No. Right. <laughs> you know, because then we just uh, kind of forget it, because it's almost in our human makeup to not want to deal with these these utter these
0: gutter truths. Yeah. It, it, When I talk to people about this play and they roll their eyes at me, I just, I feel like it's a person I can't be on the same level with. They (laughs) they just see like, who the fuck would want to sit through that? It's just just horrible nightmares and pain. It's just awful. No. Like, well, on on a surface, yeah, of course. But you have to just look a fucking quarter inch deeper than that. And you will be able to fucking maybe... It, it Maybe help you process your fucking shit when you see that this happens. This is real. And right. to see people suffer on that enormous scale in such a fucking profound, uh, tireless way is cathartic to me. It's cathartic. It's cleansing, too. Yeah, it I feels mean, good to feel yeah. that.
3: Well, you know, but it's, but it's hard. It requires effort. And I feel like we're in a society where effort mm-hmm. is not prized. Um, in fact, leisure is, and uh, we're doing everything through technology to kind of approximate the human experience. When really, it's all there. It's all there. You know, you have electronics that approximate feeling and and social networking and all that stuff. When all you have to do is kind of look somebody in the face. And in a way, this is what this is just what uh, O'Neill did with his plays, and especially this one, is that he. He tried so many ways to express the most profound truth, but ultimately it mm. was with discarding artifice and discarding tricks yeah, and constructs. It was just, ugh. Yep. he realized at the end of the day that the truth that he was seeking as an artist was synonymous with the truth that perhaps everybody's seeking in our li-
0: in life, and he was the repository. For well, so you know? thank all, you. All he needed was a living room. All he needed was a living room. That's it. Yeah, yeah, you going to see the Entourage movie this weekend? I sure am. Turtle, I love his whole. I love Turtle. <laughs> no,
3: I. I don't know who listens to this, Nate, but I have to tell you, I've I've only watched uh, Entourage only to see Jeremy Piven from time to time, but to me, watching a show about young guys with lots of money and lots of lots of pussy and lots of drugs and lots of fame does not does not uh, help me find
0: the truth, you know. You're in the majority, friend. Well, I don't know, and I'm not your friend. Fair enough. Thanks, Stephen, for coming in. You're welcome. Student loans, ugh, they they make me make this noise, ugh. But check this out. Ernest is going to help you. Meet Earnest.com. Yes, they can save you thousands and make the whole nightmarish process of dealing with student loans easy. Yes, meetearnest.com. Their product helped customers save an average of more than $12,500 with rates starting as low as 1.9 APR. That's insane. You can set your own terms. You can change your payment amount and date. You can even skip a payment. It's all just a few clicks away at meetearnest.com com. They'll never uh, pass you off to a third party at all. They'll never do that. They'll never lie to you. They'll always tell the truth. And it takes two minutes to find out how much you can save. And if you have a, uh, a special offer code, which you do because it's Nate, you get 150 bucks cash back when you refinance through meetearnest.com. M-E-E-T-E-A-R-N-E-S-T dot com slash Nate. Go there now. You'll feel better. I have such love for Steven Weber. Um he's such a fantastic actor and a wonderful kind friend. Um I just adore him and I'm really thankful that he came in. And he again I said this in the interview and, but he is tw- he's 20 years away from actually playing that part. Um and and I knew I I knew he was too young, but I was like it's it's the radio. We can like make this we can make this work. You can sort of um what is it when you Oh, God, what the fuck is that term? God, I'm... When you suspend your disbelief, good God, sometimes I just, I can't find it. I'm almost positive that's the term. Yeah. Suspension of disbelief. It shouldn't have taken me 10 seconds to find it, though, and that kind of... It's like you had a little stroke. Yeah, I hate little strokes. Teeny, tiny strokes are the worst, Unless you're tiny swimming. Oh, God, then you tiny drown. Oh, God. So, thank you to Stephen for coming in and doing that, um there is uh uh there isn't a, a better actor in town so um so thank you stephen uh, and that's our show it's kind of a weird half size show today but i wanted to spend a lot of time with stephen on that on that piece and talking about that play and O'Neill. it's so oh god it's so rich um so come back to us. In two weeks, we're going to have a brand new episode. I've been sitting on this interview with Jerry Stahl for like a month because he has a new book coming out called OG Dad. And I wanted to release time the release of the interview to, uh, to line up with the release of his book. So um, our next show, this interview with Jerry Stahl is going to fucking blow your mind. God, what a great guy. So tune in for that. That's coming up. In the meantime, pick up Don't Be Afraid, Face Your Fear, Pick up Stephen King's 112263, read it, have an awesome time reading it because it's a fucking great, fun book. And then send us your thoughts. Uh, ReadingAloudPodcast at gmail.com. Also, feel free to uh, send in your book selections, uh, like your ideas for the book club. If you've read a book recently, you've wanted to read a book with a group of people, uh, send in your uh, book club suggestions to readingaloudpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, that comes right to me and we can interact as, as friends. Uh, I'm your host, Nate Cordry. Come to the live show on Sunday, June 14th, and see Reading Aloud happen live in front of you. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you again soon with more Reading Aloud.
3: Oh, you hit me like a hurricane!
0: Again, I want to thank our sponsor, Graze.com, the snack service that wants to show you the tasty side of healthy snacking. It's, it can happen, folks. Graze.com. It delivers tasty and nutritious snacks right to your work or home. They're perfectly portioned and ready to go. No GMOs, artificial flavors or trans fats, so you can feel good about what you're snacking on. And they got over a hundred choices on their website and they all have ratings. You can handpick exactly what you want and they send it right to your door. So go to graze.com now to get a free trial box, free, that includes already four of their top rated and most delicious snacks. And use my special code, Nate. graze.com slash Nate and a free box of healthy snacks are coming to you. Thank you, Graze.
2: Hop! Pop? Pop? Pop.
0: Pop 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 pop. pop, 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 pop,
1: pop, pop, pop. Wolf Pop is part of Midroll Media. Executive produced by Adam Sachs, Matt Gorley, and Paul Shear.